0: My name's Adam Spring and this is a Remotely Interested podcast hosted at remotely-interested.com. My guest for this episode is Glenn Keller. Now, Glenn was part of the emerging computer market of the 1980s, that being the personal computing market. But before that, he did a few things which, as he'll explain, you may not have suspected from him if, if you know who he is. Now, Glenn worked on the the Paula chip for the Amiga computer. He also worked on a a couple of uh, things that uh, some alumni from the Amiga Corp, uh, RJ Michael and Dave Needle, came up with as well. And now he works for a company called Foveon, which, as you'll see all started back in his Amiga days. Now, in terms of this idea of people and technology, you know, what can we say about Glenn? Well, what I can say is Glenn is a seasoned hardware engineer, um, whether it's a camera sensor or whether it's a computer chip. This is a man that knows his stuff. And he's also somebody that he's very unassuming as well. I had the opportunity to hang out with Glenn quite a bit over the weekend of April 29th and 30th 2017. I organised a panel for the VCF Southeast 5.0, and Glenn was on it because he was one of the stars of a documentary called Viva Amiga. Now, you can listen all about that on episode 15, where I interview the filmmaker Zach Weddington. If you want to know a little bit more as well, there's uh, Aaron Rochetta's episode, which is number three, and also Dave Needles as well, which is a tribute to Dave. We do talk a little bit little bit about that anyway for now I will leave you with Glenn um I will say that he is a man of many stories but in terms of uh hearing those stories as I found out over the weekend of the of April 29th 2017 they can just come out and and when they do it was a joy to listen to because yes he's just done so many cool things anyway I will leave you with Glenn for now and uh we will wrap up afterwards
1: I guess my career in technology started in I don't know college. I guess actually, really, it should go back to high school because I got into audio and um, played around in my dad's garage and uh, built my first amplifiers, little stereo that was a lot of fun to build with tubes. So that was that was uh, how it started. I guess crystal radios and and audio amplifiers. You know, and taking apart motorcycles and stuff, too. That was fun. So that was high school. And then I went to college, and I got into, I was always into scuba diving and and water things, living in Florida. So I got into ocean engineering and started um, working on uh, little remote piloted submersibles. That was um, the project I got into, along with, no regular school stuff, and along the way, um, somebody in electrical engineering had designed a computer with logic chips, um, and it didn't work. And somebody had to make it work, so we could run the su- submarine, little submarine. So that was me. So I learned about computers that way. After that, I wanted to go to foreign lands, so I went off to Scotland, and um, this was this was this right, was right after the 70s oil crisis, and so I went off. To Scotland to work on alternative energy, a uh, thing for getting electricity from ocean waves. So I did that for about six years. That was cool. We built a wave tank the size of a swimming pool and had all kinds of fun. And then um, the funding went away when the oil prices dropped. And um, I went off to Silicon Valley. I thought I'd get on a bus and go to San Francisco and see what happened. So what happened was I met this guy and then. Lincoln town car with a little dog named Mitchy at the Sunnyvale train station and I thought I got to go work for this guy.
0: And what was Jay Minor like?
1: Oh, he's just a very um if you I think you get an idea of him if you if you look at that um, history of the Amiga tape cuz he's interviewed on that one. But he's just a really friendly guy, very open. Um, he kind of like classic California 60s kind of thing. <laughs> Just a lot of fun, uh, very good guy. Always, inter- you know, paying attention to, the, to his his young people that were working for him. Um, really smart. One of the, I think, his style of being a boss was the best I've ever seen, and I tried to emulate that. And what he would do is he would give you a hint of which direction to go. He wouldn't exactly tell you, but he would give you a little nudge in the right direction, and then just kind of let you go and do your thing but then he'd nudge you just the other way and I didn't realize this until years later exactly what what he was doing but um, I really came to appreciate it but yeah he was a really great guy
0: and everybody says he was a a master of of silicon um, or you know chips could you say what what his magic was as a chip designer or could you put a finger on it
1: um let's see no (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> he knew what he was doing um but he he had a good well one i don't know for some reason i don't i can't tell you in a general sense but i can remember he had a quite a stable of different things he would try and and he obviously knew a lot of different techniques like there was for some reason one of the things that i remember about him has to do with making an adder or something. And he had given us uh, Carver Mead's book, The um, Structure of VLSI Design or something like that, which he said was the best book at the time for how to design a bigger chip. And in there, there were a bunch of ways to do adders with um, basically transmission gates. And he said, well, you know, and, and that that was faster and stuff. And he said, you know, under certain circumstances, that works okay. But really, it's got these couple, three problems. And so you've got to be a little bit careful about using this thing. So it was like he knew all the different ways and where they would go wrong and stuff. So that particular thing for some reason stuck in my head
0: and on the business end as well because you know obviously dave needle mutual friend of ours sadly no longer around you know he loved he loved dave morse and i was wondering you know what 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 are your memories of dave
1: i didn't really know dave very well i was the the guy that sat in the back room and yeah and the junior guy that sat in the back room and designed the chips um so i didn't really have a good sense of of him i've heard from many other people that he was a great guy and all that kind of stuff but personally i didn't really know him so there's not really much i can say about him
0: what's your favorite memories from those amiga years
1: one of the things that comes to mind was the halloween party where oh my gosh who was it somebody dressed up as dave needle and came in for halloween (laughs) Oh my gosh, I can't remember his name. I have his picture of his face, but anyway, it was wonderful.
0: <laughs> Sorry, I'm just, I'm just imagining someone dressed as Dave for. Uh...
1: Yeah, it was. He did a great job of it. Yeah, he had the hair. He had the atmosphere. He really. Oh my gosh, was it maybe Don? I'm not sure, but anyway, it was that was quite wonderful.
0: So after Amiga, then basically it sounds as though that you from you know what we discussed in the past around you know Dave's memorial service, uh, you went on and you worked with on the Handy, Stroke Atari Links, and the 3DO as well. How did that come about, and what did you do on those projects? Uh, which which one? Uh, so the Handy, and then on to 3DO. I
1: think on the Handy, I I worked as a contractor on that one because for several years I I just you know did contracting work for Commodore and for for Dave, you know Dave and RJ for that thing, and for some other people, um, and I think that was in that period. So I, I did some work on that, but I don't. I remember doing some stuff on the audio to, you know, make a simple way to get a, a nice 8-bit audio out of the thing with a couple of resistors or something. But yeah, that's that's what I, that's what sticks in my mind. Okay, it's just one little thing.
0: And how did your work on the Amiga uh, inform? that sort of later exercise?
1: As in the Amiga, I wasn't doing architecture stuff. I was mainly doing implementation. Later on, I realized that, you know, it's basically a continuation of the idea of having hardware acceleration on top of the, for the Handy anyway. I think the Handy came first. But by 3DO, I realized that the continuing tradition was putting Hardware acceleration on top of you know the processor in order to make the thing more powerful. And nobody believed you could do that in a video game. I remember that for the 3DO. And so we made these big prototypes, which you probably have pictures of somewhere, and and hauled them off to Japan and showed them what could be done if you built you know custom chips. Of course, nowadays that long ago a given, but in those days it wasn't
0: so much. In the uh, Viva Amiga film, or certainly in the clips that. Zach gave me for the podcast that I did previously. Ah, uh, you mentioned a very interesting point of uh, part of what the Amiga was doing was to take elements of Unix and mainframe computing and put it in a personal computer. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that at all because I found it a very interesting point.
1: Well, yeah, the the multitasking mainly, which was really Carl. I didn't really understand it so much at the time, but that's you know none of the other personal computers had multitasking, and I think. Well, of course, they all do now, and, um, but that, that was one of the big wins because you could do more than one thing at once, and the operating system supported it smoothly and quickly. That was the genius of Carl. Um, so a lot of the stuff that was built on top of that allowed you to do more interactive stuff than you could before. If you just had a spreadsheet, you're doing one thing. And I mean, that's the level spreadsheet or a one task device is what pretty much everything was at that point, except for the Amiga. And the the memory limitations and so forth were kind of constrained what you could do at that point, because it was so relatively the memory and the um, storage was much more expensive than it became. Quite soon, it became much cheaper. And that kind of thing became um easier to do
0: yeah and kind of feeding into that as well because you know i think uh, an interesting point that you kind of teased out through the 3do japan example is this mm. idea of a custom chipset which you know might be foreign to some of the audience now that's used to contemporary computing could you possibly explain why back then there was a need for custom chipsets and you know what they were actually needed for.
1: They weren't really needed. You could still do the things that computers could do without them. But what they allowed you to do was to, all the stuff that took a long time in software, you can make it go faster. And so it allowed you to do things. Well, I mean, the obvious thing is, is, is graphic manipulation. And rendering, and that's the the heavy duty one. So that's the main thing that the custom chips allow you to do like putting a an arbitrary sound wave out is a pretty simple thing to do in hardware, but in software it's it takes up a huge amount of processor time, and similarly with other there are certain other things that are quite simple relatively to do in hardware, even even with the the five micron transistors we had back then, but that take much, much longer in software. So. So the idea is to offload the tasks that are better done with bits of silicon or or dedicated bits of silicon um, away from the main processor so the main processor can do what it does best, calculate and organize and
0: stuff. And what would you say, you know, for you as a hardware engineer, what was the standout thing for you with the custom chipsets that went into the Amiga?
1: Well, I was prejudiced for for my pieces. (laughs) Uh, I mean, for me, the funnest thing, I think, was the ability to read structure the audio at what seemed to be the last minute and make it a whole lot better. I think I had some idea about how to, that we could make it a whole lot better than it was than the original architecture. That was the transition from Porsche to Paula. And um, so it gave us quite a lot more bit depth than we had originally. So that was, for me, that was the funnest, one of the funnest parts. And the disc controller was also a huge amount of fun because I always liked um, feedback control systems, and, and so it was fun to try to make, traditionally use a VCO, sorry, a phase lock loop to detect disk bit, and how do you do a phase lock loop without a phase lock loop, and that was fun. I really enjoyed that. So the, the control and feedback and stuff has, has always been a lot of fun for me. Control system.
0: Does it still amaze you that people are still working with and love things like the Amiga, the the Handy, and the 3DO so Does you know, as someone that's kind of had a part in creating these things, does it does it kind of amaze you?
1: Well, it seems a little weird to me, but or it used to seem more weird. But then I started adding up years, and I thought, well, um, it's not that much different than a 57 Chevy in the nineties in terms of the time. So when somebody said it's kind of like these old cars that people really like, it's like, well, I guess that makes sense. You know, there's certain kinds of things that, people just like and for some reason they continue to like them and i'm very honored and kind of a little bit mystified that people like this thing but
0: um it's pretty cool and you mentioned previously when we were talking when we were setting this up that you worked on the aaa chipset a little bit and was a contractor for commodore after that's right after amiga got bought what by commodore what was what was kind of your relationship you know, with, with Commodore then. Oh, you mean after it closed? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and just sort of like the AAA chipset and being a contractor and stuff like that. Well, yeah, I just, I was a
1: contractor for a while. Um, I didn't want to move to Pennsylvania. So, and neither did pretty much anybody else. So, so I worked as a contractor and several other people did too. And, um, I worked for Jim Redfield, who's a really good guy. And I basically worked on all three of them, all three of the chips, And that was a lot of fun. I mean, we moved forward like, like the next logical step. Um, we had, one of the things that sticks out is one of the guys, we, we were designing regular 16-bit audio on this next generation. We figured that was necessary. And I just remember how good the, the guy who was doing the layout of that was. of the, um, There's a bunch of switched current sources and stuff, and, and it was just brilliant can't remember the guy's name, but I just thought, wow, this is really cool.
0: What would the performance of the AAA chipsets been like in comparison to the original chipsets?
1: No, I just don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. It was better. I don't remember. It could have been 2X, could have been 4X. I don't actually
0: remember, really. How did you end up doing what you're doing now at Foveon, uh, camera sensors? At some point later on, I had um,
1: met Carver Mead. Later, after the Amiga days, and um, at one point, I would finished up some job, and we would occasionally talk every now and again. And um, he said, "Well, you know, why don't you go talk to the people at this company that I'm starting up?" So I did. It turned out one of the people (laughs) there knew RJ, so that one of the seven or eight people who were working there at the time knew RJ. So, you know, there was already a connection two people I had worked with before, which is weird.
0: And the thing I find interesting about Foveon is it seems as though it's trying to uh, replicate what was previously done in films with the layers of RGB. I was wondering for the audience whether you could uh, talk about you know, its differences to normal CMOS chips and how CMOS chips work and how the Foveon chip works or chips work.
1: Most um, camera sensors use a method called a Bayer pattern. And... What that means is that the colors are sampled on the surface of the silicon, all of them, and they're sampled next to each other. So you'd usually have a square of four sensors, and there two of them are green, and one's blue and one's red. Then that's what you actually sense in terms of the light. You sense these colors next to each other. And then... Um, You combine those. For the green ones, you try to figure out what the red and blue is, and you use all the ones around it. And many PhDs have been written about this and can do a pretty good job. But you still don't have local spatial information of all three colors. So the Foveon sensor actually has the red, green, and blue sensors stacked vertically in the silicon using um, the property that silicon gradually absorbs light as you get deeper into it. It's semi-transparent. And it just turns out that it's, about the right amount of transparent and absorption to make it work for the human eye. So it uses three sensors stacked vertically to sense the lights, which means your spatial location of the colors is very, very well aligned. That's the key thing about it. And so there's certain qualities of the picture that look better. There's... You can do quantitative stuff
0: but also qualitatively it has a different look to it. What would be the things that you would notice if you were using a foveon sensor in comparison to a CMOS? Well, of course it depends on the size of the pixels. If you make
1: the pixels small enough in in the a Bayer sensor you can get similar results anyway. But generally my feeling is that in a qualitative feeling when I look at the pictures it just feels more natural. It's kind of hard to describe it. from a Quantitative picture when you do test charts and that kind of thing, black and white test charts and sort of relatively simple patterns on those you can you generally find that what we normally use as a criteria is that three of our sensors is worth about it's like three to two so one of uh, th- three layer sensor is, is equivalent to about two Bayer pixels roughly so and there's a lot of different other trade-offs there. So It's actually pretty complicated, the whole story. But in, in a lot of situations, or in in certain situations, um, you you can get a very, very good picture.
0: What's your earliest memory of meeting somebody like R.J., R.J. Michael? Because I know, you know, obviously from Dave's memorial, you guys, you, him, and Karen, you've still got a continuing friendship. Um yeah. You know, what's your earliest memories of meeting him? And I believe, didn't you know Karen before you knew RJ?
1: Um, I, I, I would have met her if she, I, did she start at Amiga before RJ? I, I, I don't actually remember anymore <laughs> <laughs> which of them started. I was there before both of them, I know, but I don't remember which of them started first. I didn't really interact with Karen that much um, when I was there. She was kind of doing the marketing and all that stuff, and I was like the nerdly guy hanging out in the back corner, so I didn't really know her very well at that time. Um, but I remember r j and i he you know he was living in an apartment just down the street, and we would you know talk about stuff, and he was as he is now interested in everything and i, I for some reason, what strikes me is is we were sitting hanging out in his apartment and, and playing with a little board in the swimming pool. And I had just come off of this thing in Scotland doing wave power. And so I had you know, done some study of ocean waves and stuff. And we were looking at the waves and how they propagated and that kind of thing. And he was trying to think about how to emulate it in software. And so that was, it was kind of two young guys not too far out of college hanging out
0: kind of thing. Yeah. And what do you remember of uh, Dave Needle as the janitor?
1: I don't actually remember him being the janitor, quite frankly. I just remember that when he was assigned, I remember at some point he was assigned to help me with the prototyping, and I remember talking to Jane saying, "Wow, this guy is really smart." Um, <laughs> so I, I'm as, him being very philosophical. I think he had a much deeper understanding of. Well in fact, a lot of the most of the people there, I think, had, you know, like uh, Dale and and R.J. and um, Dave Needle and all the uh, you know the other people I worked with, a lot of them had been in Silicon Valley or had worked in regular tech in technology companies for a while, and so they had a much or electronics technology companies, they had a much better idea of what this meant. I was, you know, I'd been working on wave power and electronics. I'd done stuff with computers, but nothing on the level of actually designing a chip. Why Jay hired me, I I don't know. (laughs) But, um, so that's the sense I had, or at least some little pieces.
0: One of the last conversations I had with Dave, I I asked him this question, and I'm going to ask you, is, uh, do you think, you know, accidental or otherwise, what was created through the Amiga was actually a developer platform? um because if you look at the way you know after commodore went bankrupt and what's going on now with morphos aros amiga s4 stuff like that it seems to very much show that pattern that what the amiga ended up becoming was a developer platform for people and you know this gateway to creativity on a level level that maybe wasn't seen before on a consumer consumer grade level do you, do you think that's the case or
1: yeah i think so the the thing that comes to mind is the the video toaster thing because that was cre- clearly a platform that allowed people to do you know creative stuff at a much cheaper price at least as far as i know anyway i mean i haven't don't actually know the numbers but the my impression anyway is that 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 was one of the things that allowed people to develop stuff or are you thinking about software development
0: um no i'm thinking about things like the uh toaster um, but I guess also, you know, software development and things like that feeds into it as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mainly, it, that's the one I know about. I'd worked for other people building um, building add-ons to the Amiga for a while. I did a couple different things. One, um, one was a, um, a heads up display for a little um, remote controlled submersible. That was fun. So I still had some contacts in the ocean engineering field. So I did that, and I did a couple of other things, little add-ons.
0: Do you remember anything about the Amiga being used in the design of the both the Handy and the 3DO at all? Because I know from like talking to Dave and photographs that I've seen that he showed me that in the early stages of the 3DO or what became the 3DO, the Amiga was used as a development platform for it.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't remember that. It's quite possible. It, he's probably, yeah, he's, I'm sure he's tr- right, but. I don't remember any of
0: that. What's your standout memories of people like Dale and Carl when they were working on the Amiga project?
1: Well, Dale was always very intense. <laughs> he was he was a lot of fun, and he would get things done so quickly. I didn't really understand software very well at, at that point. I had just done really, really simple stuff, so I didn't understand the magic of, of what they were doing very well. Um I know that Dale did some amazing stuff with, with the graphics and so forth, but I didn't really know what it was he did. The thing, that, the thing that stands out about Carl was it seemed like he was able to make stuff that was like 20 times smaller than anybody else and have it work very smoothly and quickly. So his stuff is the core, you know, the executive and the core of the whole thing was a very solid base for, you know, as far as I could tell anyway for other people to build on, which is what happened. Um, I was just sad that they didn't um, build the, their own DOS and instead got one from somewhere else because it it turned out to be a lot slower.
0: What memories do you have of uh, Dave Needle that, you know, now that he's not around, what are the ones that, if you think about him from time to time, pop up?
1: Well, he had this um, this Jovian philosophy, which I thought was, was very nice. Um, the The... Well, what, what did he always say? Snot pit when he wanted to buy you lunch. Okay. And that, that the philosophy of what's not, meant, what Snot, S N A U G H meant, I thought always thought was really good. And it was can I buy or do something for you with no expectation of having anything back and just because it's my pleasure to do it? Like it was the idea of gift giving not requiring feedback not requiring a return and because it's your joy to do that thing and that was you know in terms of one of the things that well you asked me for what stands out and that's one of them it's yeah he was a great guy deeply philosophical and very smart
0: so as i said leading into glenn glenn is somebody who is very seasoned as a hardware engineer but also very unassuming as well and having had the opportunity to casually hang out with him over a weekend, it was genuinely a pleasure listening to his stories. And by listening, I mean just stuff that would randomly come up in passing. Like, for example, uh, I hand him a, a digestive biscuit as way of uh, thanking him after the after the Viva Amiga panel. And casually, he just drops in there. Oh, yeah, by the way, did you know a Brit actually helped out with the uh, the sound chip for the Amiga? And I'm like, uh, no. And he's like, yeah, 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 Scott, by the name of uh, David Jeffries, he uh, he helped with the filters. And my, my jaw almost hit the floor. I was like, well, that's a new piece of information. There were other examples of that as well, uh, like the Amiga 500 where, so apparently Glenn, uh, prior to uh, Commodore doing the Amiga 500, one of his tasks was the uh, cost-cutting of the original Amiga. So how could you reduce the cost of the Amiga 1000? And Glenn was like, yeah, so when I was looking over the designs for the Amiga 500... Yeah, oh they did a far better job than I could. So, one of the great pleasures of interviewing Glenn was just his his sincere modesty and also as well, you know, when you when you're talking with somebody who just has the experiences that he has had. Yeah, it's 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 like gold on tape, so to speak. Anyway, it's it's been a pleasure doing this one for you. Um do listen out for, you know, the next episode. I promise it won't be as long as it's taken me to do this one. And until next time, I'll see you soon. Hello there. My name's Adam Spring. And I'm here to talk to you about a number of ways in which you can stay connected with and contribute to the Remotely Interested podcast. As I've said before, it's listener supported and i love to include you guys as, as much as I can. Anyway, the big two are iTunes and SoundCloud, which you can subscribe to. Also for SoundCloud, you can follow, you can like, you can share. You can do a number of things with the content that I put up there. There's also Google Play where you can check this podcast out. And there's also a Facebook page that you can like. Now, in terms of connecting with me directly, there's a Twitter handle, which is at that interested. You can also follow and reach out to me there. And there's also the remotely interested email as well, which is contact at remotely-interested.com. Anyway, I love doing this for you. I hope you enjoy it and thanks for listening to the show.